0: Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and today I'm concluding my four-episode series on campus ministries. My guest today is Carl Johnson, the Executive Director of the Consortium of Christian Study Centers, a unique initiative to minister to students on campuses throughout the U.S. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stan. It's great to be with you today. One of the aims of this podcast is to help students and their parents have a, a good idea of how they can help their 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 children flourish during the college years. And many of my previous guests have emphasized that it's very important to be a part of a Christian community on campus. But there are, are many to choose from on most campuses. So I'm doing a series on campus ministries so that students and their parents can have some sense of the distinctives and the different emphases of 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 each group. And and what they would experience if they got involved with this group or that. And this week, we're discussing the Ministry of Christian Study Centers in the lives of particularly undergraduate students during those years. So uh, I'm delighted to have you join me as the Executive Director of the Consortium of Christian Study Centers. So first, I'd like to know how you first got involved in the Christian Study Center movement, and in what ways have you been involved?
1: Sure. Uh, My involvement has a very kind of biographical tale to it, which is that I arrived at university back in the mid-80s, a very secular university, Cornell University. Uh And um, my background at the time was sort of a mainline church-going home and family. And when I arrived at the university, it was a very different environment, just uh, considerably more militant in its secularism, Mm. Um, I was not a particularly religious person at the time, um, but I had gone to church most of my life. And um, something about the the secular nature of the environment, it it tends to force you in one of two directions, either to abandon your faith or, as the case may be, to press on a little bit more deeply into it. And in my case, it it had the, the latter effect. But Over the course of my time at the university, I I developed this sort of twofold frustration. The first, perhaps most obvious one, was a a frustration with the university that it made so little room or space for, for faith. Um, either as an object of study or as a lens of study or or even just a place where you could actually bring your religious identity with you, as opposed to checking it at the door. But the other frustration, which was uh, every bit as real as I began reengaging with church, was a kind of anti-intellectualism in the church, uh, an unwillingness perhaps even a fearfulness of really digging into the difficult issues of the day. Hmm. Um, So, you know, back in the 80s, Marxism was still a big deal. Right. Um, And, you know, what what is a Christian view of Marxism other than to be utterly dismissive of it? How do we understand it as a worldview, as an explanatory framework? Um, These were conversations that were, for the most part, not really happening in church, and yet they're important conversations, conversations I was interested in. So I was kind of looking around like, okay, who's having these conversations? you know, where where can I find these? And there was an open space. And so I started asking around over the course of several years, you know, how can we do this? I mean, can't we create some kind of a, a community or a ministry or something that takes seriously both the life of the mind and the life of Christ. Instead of having to choose between these things and and separate them out by day and by Sunday or Wednesday evening Bible study, as if they occupy separate spheres. Mm. And it took quite a while, really, um, but people started telling me, "Hey, there's this place down in Charlottesville, Virginia. This place called the Center for Christian Study. You know, and um, they're doing something like this, bringing in speakers and having conversations." about these kinds of topics. And so to make a long story short, I took a close look at what they were doing down there. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to replicate that and to create something just like it uh, at Cornell? And that's what we did. Mm.
0: When you say we, so uh, you are still an undergraduate at this time, right? So how did that work?
1: Yeah. So these questions began percolating in me when I was an undergraduate, but I would say through my undergraduate years, I Continued to have this kind of schizophrenic existence, you know, where the life of the mind occupied my weekdays, and the life of faith was, you know, Sundays and Bibles. So it was really some years later, when I was doing my graduate work, that I became familiar with um, the Center for Christian Study, as well as uh, somewhere around 1995 or so. I took a road trip with a couple of grad student friends down to Yale. Um, for this new thing called a Veritas Forum. I had no idea what it was, <laughs> um, but there were a bunch of great speakers. Uh, La Sana, Nick Wolterstorff of Yale, Jeremy Begby was there. Um, and, and this really smart sounding guy I had never heard of by the name of N.T. Wright. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it was a very inspiring weekend. And on the way home, I remember thinking, wow, you know, love to have something like that at Cornell. But I started to develop the idea of, Instead of something that was vertically scheduled very intensively over the course of a single weekend of perhaps taking this speaker series and laying it down horizontally, spreading it out over the course of the entire academic year. Mm. And that was my original conception of a study center was that it would be something like a Veritas Forum that never ends. So I pulled together a group of pastors, campus ministry workers, um, and a few professors And I said, hey, I've got an idea. I'd like to do this. Uh, Are you in? And at that initial meeting, there were about 12 people in the room, and half of them signed on to be the founding board members of what became Chesterton House. This was back in the year 2000.
0: Wow. So take us briefly through the last two decades since that inception.
1: Yeah, well, at first, it was very slow going. Back then, there were really only a very small number of study centers and really only one of any size at at UVA. And um, so I wouldn't even go so far as to say that the model was tried and true at that point. Mm. We didn't really know if this thing was going to work. And so it was a purely volunteer effort. And only after about five years of doing it did we feel like, yeah, there's a need, there's a demand this thing is potentially viable. And I started doing Chesterton house full-time and, you know, it continued to be a little bit of a slow growing project for a few uh-huh. years. And then when the housing crisis happened in 2008, 2009, it was both a difficult moment for the ministry, but also a turning point for the better, because what happened was one of these big old Greek houses that almost never come on the market was being liquidated by a national fraternity. Wow. And we didn't have the money to buy it, but we started renting it from the new owner. And then 4 years later we were able to purchase it. And so we got very involved in residential ministry around 2010. Define that term for our listeners, residential ministry. Sure. So we started what we call intentional Christian community where we have a, a group of Christians not just living together but living together as christians Mm -hmm. so there are rhythms daily weekly christian calendar type rhythms prayer devotions you know weekly meetings sunday house dinner uh we're doing things together shopping cooking cleaning chores and in the midst of this is the full messiness of life disagreements and conflict that has to be mediated, reconciliation that is constantly being pursued. Um, you know, we would teach the students, you don't we don't refer to ourselves as a reconciled community, but as a reconciling, community because it's just always in process um so there's this kind of you know what we sometimes call life on life discipleship 24 yeah. 7 discipleship one of the challenges of campus ministry of course is how do you get access to the students time they're so busy with their studies and their extracurricular activities but if they're living in the house you're just with them yeah. um, and so uh it's a it's a it's a powerful not easy, but a powerful way of doing ministry. So yeah, we got into residential ministry around 2010. And by the end of the second decade, when I was stepping down at our 20th anniversary, we had a pretty well-developed two-acre campus across the street from the university uh, with two big old uh, houses, each housing, you know, one housing 20 men and the other almost a similar number of women, little cottage for staff members, and um, plenty of room for hospitality, tons and tons and tons of hospitality for, for other students, faculty members, parents, alumni, everybody. Mm.
0: And then quite recently, you stepped down as director of the Chesterton House there at Cornell and assumed the executive directorship of the Consortium of Christian Study Centers.
1: Yes. Well, For a variety of reasons, the timing seemed right. In 2020, interestingly enough, I was contacted by folks who were starting a Christian Study Center at MIT called the Octet Collaborative. And I said, hey, would you work with us to help launch this thing? And so that was actually how I spent most of 2020 was working remotely to help launch this new study center, which really uh, kind of reinvigorated my own energy around starting Christian study centers. Wow. Um, at the same time, I was the chair of the board of the consortium. Our executive director, Drew Trotter, was stepping down after serving you know, for the first dozen years or so since we had started it back in 2009. And so it, it, it made sense for me to uh, to apply to be the director. And I was fortunate enough that the board members, after I stepped down from the board, selected me to be the director. And uh, so since January of last year, this is what, what I've been doing. Say what the consortium is. Uh, right. Back around 2007, 2008, 2009, a bunch of us who were doing this type of Christian study center work, we got together to share best practices with each other um, somewhat informally, mm. uh, but then we decided to formalize it. So let's actually start this thing. Let's make it a consortium. And uh, the purpose of the consortium is to encourage each other in this work, um, to advance each other's work, as well as to encourage the growth of the movement, the, the the founding of new study centers, not planting new study centers, but just to kind of encourage and facilitate The various grassroots efforts and initiatives among folks who are starting, the barriers to entry are significant. It's not easy to start a study center, and Mm -hmm. so we wanted to create an organization that kind of greased the skids a little bit and um, made it a little bit easier for for new ones to get launched.
0: So through through your story, you've in a sense told us what Christian study centers are. But uh, now in the seat you're in, give me sort of the official definition. Somebody says, what is a Christian study center? What would you say to them?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I love this question um, and I love it because it doesn't have a simple answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could probably spend an entire hour just talking about this, which I know yeah. is not what you have in mind. But <laughs> here, here are a few ways I would respond to that question. So sometimes I like to say that a Christian study center is a hub or a gathering place of Christian community and Christian learning. And on many campuses, that is a pretty good description of what you would find. Um, but of course, not all Christian study centers have facilities. Mm. Um, and so it's an imperfect definition. So we might also refine that a little bit and say that uh, Christian study centers are communities. Okay. There are communities characterized by certain kinds of conversations, or maybe even uh, a conversation-based community, a community constituted by conversation. Mm. And the types of conversations that we have tend to be very focused around faith and learning, faith and vocation. We often use the word vocation to talk about career or future career. But what we like to tell students is that your vocation is not just future tense, it's present tense. And your current vocation is to be a student. Great! So let's dig into the vocation of learning. That's one way of answering the question of what a study center is. There also tends to be a lot of talk about Um, the relationship between faith and learning. We use the word integration sometimes to describe that relationship. It's an imperfect word, uh, but it's nevertheless, I believe, still a a good word. Um, And part of the way this relationship plays out from a Christian Studies Center perspective is that religion in general, Christian faith in particular, can be approached not just as an object of study, but as a lens of study. We believe that the Holy Spirit Illumines learning. Mm. So there's a kind of advantage of sorts of having a faith perspective when it comes to seeking understanding. There's a great line uh, from C.S. Lewis where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. One of my favorite quotes. Yeah, it, it, it very nicely captures, I think, the possibilities. Of distinctively Christian learning. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other thing that's that's an essential component to a Christian study center, especially as we've defined it formally at the consortium, is the context, which is at a secular university. There exist other kinds of study centers that are more destination-based, like, say, Labrie. Uh, which is a a, a grandparent of sorts of the Christian Study Center movement.
0: You might say a word about that. I'm not sure all of our listeners are familiar with that very important history in the Study Center movement.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Labrie was a a retreat center in Switzerland started by a fellow named Francis Schaefer. Uh, I believe back in the 60s. I mean, this does go back before my time. Right. And, you know, many people traveling through Europe at the time would stop in there for a few days or longer. And it was a place where questions of any type were were welcomed and explored and life and learning were explored from a Christian worldview perspective. Mm -hmm. One of the differences now is that the conversations are very specialized by discipline Mm. and require Um, different experts who have disciplinary expertise to deal with questions that are coming up, whether it's in the sciences, social sciences, humanities, or whatever. Christian study centers, as we define it, exist at secular universities or pluralistic universities. And so we're constantly seeking to learn what it means to inhabit these places as Christians, to be the church, so to speak, in this distinctive setting, or environment, uh, which is to say a place that takes seriously the life of the mind. But we're looking not always to be activists. Again, we're seeking to to be a Christian community. Uh, That's not to say that we don't care about doing as well as being. Uh, We aspire in the future, of course, to have some influence in society and culture. But for the present, the emphasis is not primarily on activism as such. It's on learning and, and being the church in the university. Mm. So, taking all of that together, I would say, you know, we seek uh, the integration of faith and learning. We seek to inhabit secular universities, and we aspire to future influence in society and culture.
0: That's a very helpful summary. I appreciate you distilling all of that. How many study centers are there now? There are 33. Tell us some of the places they are. I know you won't name all 33, but, but where, where do they tend to, where, where where might students tend to find study centers? What kind of universities? You said pluralistic, right. but uh, there's still a lot in that category. Do you right. tend to focus on smaller schools, larger
1: schools, state schools, private schools? Well, here's the thing is we don't focus. That's because right. These are grassroots initiatives. So they pop up wherever somebody has the vision and the initiative to make it happen. Now, that said, if you look at the pattern, you might perceive there's an ecological niche of sorts. Mm. Uh, so, large research universities, oftentimes public universities. And I think there are reasons for that. The public universities, because they're particularly skittish about church state issues, tend to have really bracketed religion as an area of study. They tend not to have. Divinity schools or seminaries attached mm. to them, their religious mm-hmm. studies programs are sometimes not that well developed, right? So there's, there's mm-hmm. a white space there that people tend to step into and say, hey, let's start a set of conversations that's not already happening. The other thing is the larger the university, the the more living alumni there are and the easier it is to raise the money to build and sustain one of these things. It's actually much harder to pull off at a small college than at a large university. I see. So you tend to see these at, um, you know, University of Florida, University of Texas, University of Virginia, University of North Carolina, University of Minnesota, University of uh, Wisconsin. Um, All all these places have uh, study centers. We actually, if you look at our uh website, there's a map. You can see there's a certain concentration of them in the Virginia, North Carolina area. Probably almost a third of all study centers are are right there in those two states, which probably has something to do with, you know, demographics, uh sure. but it might also have to do with just the several spin-offs from the um the original mothership at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Sure.
0: Well, I know one of the things that you're committed to, and I really appreciate this, is serving the entire university community, students, faculty, administrators. So, for undergraduate students heading off to college or already there, what does that look like for them? Are they the primary focus usually? Are they mostly involved in conversations that are happening among graduate students or faculty? What, what is that going to look like for
1: them? Again, I would say that different study centers have different emphases. There is a sense in which the very strong emphasis on the life of the mind means that sometimes graduate students connect a little bit more naturally to the work of the study center than, say, undergraduate students. Mm. But actually, I would say most study centers really do have a pretty strong emphasis on serving undergraduate students. Um, whether that means holding certain kinds of conversations that are on a slightly lower shelf, so they're more accessible to the undergraduate students, or developing new creative kinds of ministry options, whether it's a fellows program or a residential ministry or a pre-orientation retreat or whatever it is. There, are, there do tend to be lots of opportunities for undergraduate students to engage with most study centers.
0: Okay. And I was actually just at the uh, the rather new study center at the University of Wisconsin, uh-huh. got a tour of it and saw their beautiful facilities. And they were talking about how they they do a lot of things for students around uh, finals, where students can come in, study, have have meals. It was, it was quite impressive how they were really trying to serve the undergraduate community at times like that. Did so many other things, lecture series and things you've mentioned, but really in very tangible ways, really tried to serve the students in those those challenging weeks around finals, especially, that I, I was impressed with. And I, I remember back uh, when, a number of years ago, I did faculty ministry at the University of Florida, and you had mentioned the Christian Studies Center there, and uh, they had a coffee shop. Yes, on the first floor of their two-story building, it was called Pascal's, which was nice, right? And uh, it was packed with students. Mm-hmm. Great chance for conversations to develop. A lot of Christian students had their first experience with the study center there. And then they'd see the flyer about a, a talk on this issue that might relate to an issue in their discipline and they'd go and get more involved. So, uh, that was, a uh, an incarnational way to be present for students that I sure appreciated.
1: Yeah. Hospitality tends to be a pretty strong emphasis of most study centers. And this is, you know, perhaps part of the the DNA that can be traced back to Labrie mm. where there's a kind of, you know, warm invitation to mm-hmm. sit around a, Uh, Whether it's a fireplace or a living room or whatever to have conversation with others. So study centers that have facilities um, are set up very well for hospitality and others will extend hospitality in the homes of either the directors and staff or perhaps help facilitate similar kinds of conversations in the homes of faculty members As much as we tend to emphasize the life of the mind and the integration of faith and learning, we're always trying to attend to the whole person and putting these conversations in the broader context of our physical needs and our needs for community and relationship is part of what we aim for.
0: Well, and in your seat, you hear stories all the time, I'm sure, of how different study centers are doing this in creative ways. Can you give us some other examples of how study centers have tried to really serve students by creating community and conversation?
1: Sure. So uh, we've already talked about the Gainesville Center, which has Mm -hmm. a coffee shop, which is uh, it's a little bit unique among study centers. Certainly, that's that would be the most well-developed coffee shop type ministry that there is out there. Ah. Um, I believe you were at Upper House. That's the center you visited recently. They have an extraordinary 17,000 square foot facility Mm -hmm. that's uh, also kind of a a walk-in type center people can come to and they can study and hang out and have small group meetings there.
0: Literally right across from campus. So 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 accessible.
1: Yeah. Many of the study centers now have what are called fellows programs, um, which are learning cohorts uh, that will meet over the course of a year or two years. And they'll read oftentimes some great books together. So there's a kind of a curriculum that goes with it. This is often described as a form of intellectual hospitality, and I, I I think that's a very interesting phrase. Yeah, a kind of encouragement or receptivity to ideas themselves, huh. but it also puts us in a position of extending hospitality to scholars at our universities, not just Christian scholars, but scholars doing research on any and every topic where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a kind of basis for just inviting them into our spaces to share their learning and their research with us while we sit at their feet and learn from them. And in the spirit of common grace, you know, not, not beginning with an encounter that aims at conversion as such um, but learning from the wisdom that God has given to all those who are created in his image.
0: Great. So you've mentioned a number of these study centers are right off campus and, and maybe even students just see them and wonder in, but more broadly, even if that's not the case, how can students find a Christian study center on their campus?
1: There are probably several uh, entry points. For those who are really looking and finding study centers at the university they're attending before they even land on campus, some centers are hosting pre-orientation retreats, even before move-in day. For a few days, some centers are running either overnight retreats or even two, three, four-day retreats. These are really fantastic opportunities. Um, not only for the learning that's involved, but even more so for the relationships that are built. So students get to know other Christian students, they get to know campus ministers, oftentimes they're meeting local pastors and or Christian faculty members. So by the time the doors of the dorms open, and they're moving in, Mm -hmm. they've already got a pretty good head start on their community and their fellowship. So that's a great way connect very promptly uh, with a center and with the Christian community at a university. Mm. Sometimes uh, students will get involved with one of the campus fellowships in varsity or, or crew or navigators or whatever it is, and they'll encounter the study center through the fellowship because study centers tend to collaborate with these fellowships. Uh, that might be the form of a speaker at a weekly meeting or a speaker at a retreat or a collaborative project like a Veritas Forum or something like that. So a lot of times study centers are encountered by students who first get involved in one of these uh, campus fellowships. To get involved in a residential ministry or a fellows program requires a little bit more intentional effort perhaps and often comes through word of mouth if a student knows an upper-class student who's been involved in, in one of those kinds of programs offered by a center.
2: We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students, that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith.
0: So you mentioned the other campus ministries, and I think it's fabulous to see the Study Center working in collaboration with the other ministries. And I, I've, I've observed it and, and really have uh, seen students benefit from that. But obviously, you do bring something unique and distinctive, and you've already, I think, alluded to this, but would you, in, in in the most direct way possible from your perspective, say, here are the distinctives of the study center and how we can partner well with other ministries to, to gather, serve students best?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question, Stan. It's super important um, and one that I enjoy speaking to. If we think about the university campus and the campus ministry landscape as an ecosystem of sorts. There's a a wide array of needs and opportunities. Most of the other campus fellowships tend to have Bible studies. They tend to have uh, weekly large group meetings. Uh, Many of them have retreats. Many of them offer small group or one-on-one discipleship. Christian study centers oftentimes don't do these same sorts of things, or at least not in the same way. We're not trying to replicate. We're not trying to compete. I would say we're trying to do a few things. One is to complement what the other organizations are already doing. Mm. So just to take as an example, almost all study centers offer lectures featuring Christian scholars. This is something that tends to be not as easy. Uh, for fellowships to do. Right. I'll just give you as an example. At Cornell, many years ago when I was getting started, the fellowships oftentimes did bring speakers in um, and sometimes very, very good speakers. But the talks tended to be attended by only the students who were already involved in that particular fellowship. So Mm -hmm. you might get a great speaker and you might get 30 or 40 students attending. And I approached the campus ministers and I just said, I'll tell you what, When you want to bring somebody in, why don't you let me know, and I'll talk to the other campus ministers, see if we can't get this thing co-sponsored by a whole bunch of different groups. And we started doing this, and it wasn't that hard, but the attendance would sometimes go from 30 or 40 to 300 to 400, just through facilitating that collaboration. And that was a win for everybody, including the folks who were making the initial invitation to the speaker. Right. Mm -hmm. So we try to encourage and facilitate that kind of collaboration across the several different groups that are on campus. Also, in the spirit of kind of gathering and unifying uh, campus ministers, a lot of us host prayer meetings where campus ministers come together weekly or whatever the rhythm is and pray with each other and pray for each other. This can be very rich, especially over the course of many years when lives are knitted together very intimately. And it also makes conflict between campus ministers and their programs much less likely, right? Um, it's, it's harder to be upset with somebody for doing something when you've been praying with them and for them every week for years at a time. Right. So uh, we seek to complement what other groups are doing. We seek to gather and unify campus ministries. But even more proactively than that, I would say w- we seek to serve them however we can, and not just through programming, but oftentimes through facilities. If we can make our facilities available to them, either for their small group meetings or perhaps through offering space, you know, for them to use as an office, whatever that might be, the libraries that we can make available for uh, study and preparation of Bible studies. These are things we love to do, and this this collaborative spirit it's really very much a part of the DNA. Of the study center movement, going back to the founding of the center in Charlottesville, which originally really was all about collaboration. Mm. Um, So we try to model and facilitate what I sometimes call a spirit of non-combatancy in the campus ministry space.
0: Good, so healthy, so such such the kingdom of God incarnate.
1: It's also worth noting and I think this is very interesting and I find this very encouraging I can think of at least three study centers that have been started by intervarsity staff mm. and I don't mean former intervarsity staff I mean people who are still on intervarsity staff who basically said what this campus needs is a study center uh, so most recently the Cambridge Center the William and Mary's
0: Right. To bring that added dimension that they aren't called to do as a ministry, but right. is so important and can work together then uh, to advance the mission on campus.
1: Right. They're seeing, you know, there there's something else in the ecosystem that's not being addressed. Mm-hmm. Let's build it out. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, Carl, do all Christian study centers in the consortium
0: subscribe to a common statement of faith?
1: Uh, yes. We ask all centers to affirm the Apostles' Creed. It's very broad. It's very ecumenical. And um, there are all different sorts of of centers. Some are perhaps very similar to each other. I've already mentioned the one that I started. We literally just modeled after the the one uh, already very well-established center as time goes on. They take more different sorts of, you know, sizes and shapes programmatically and otherwise. But the thing that holds us together is the historic creed, the Apostles' Creed. Mm-hmm. And who's
0: required to affirm that? Staff, volunteers, student leaders, all students,
1: faculty involved? So at the consortium level, we ask the center as such to affirm the creed when they join the consortium. Mm. Many, if not most, or possibly even all centers have themselves more specific statements of faith that would be required of board members and staff to affirm. But we don't track that board members of that specific study center of that study center. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Are there study centers that aren't part of the consortium or every study center in the country is also a member?
1: So there are certainly study centers that are not attached to universities, destination type study centers. So that would, they would not qualify for membership in the consortium. Could you give us an example of of that? Like Ligonier maybe? Yeah, exactly. Ligonier would be an example. Okay. There are also at least a few study centers that I know of that are at universities that are not or not yet affiliated with the consortium. In a few cases, they're in the startup phase mm-hmm. and they're in conversation with us. They're like, hey, we're just getting started. You know, Can you help us out with this or that or the other thing? But they're trying to secure their 501c3 status or build mm-hmm. out their board or whatever. And oftentimes they end up joining you know, a year or two after that. And then, you know, there there might be a few others out there that are a little bit off the radar and just more independent. Okay.
0: Well, I've got four questions I've asked every other ministry that I've had on. So I'm going to ask you them. I'm not sure they all map to what you do exactly. So you have full license to nuance and uh, answer this the way it ought to be answered in your context. But the first question is this. Would you put the Christian Study Center movement, or at least the consortium, on the more conservative or the more progressive end of the evangelical spectrum? And if so, why? Or and why?
1: Yeah. Oh, there's so much wrapped up in this. Um, right down, right down into the you know the, the meaning and the connotation and the unpacking of these words. Right. And, um, there's probably no way to answer this perfectly and no way to answer it without triggering disagreement amongst some or constituencies. Right. But I would I, I, I'm inclined to say for starters that the senators are somewhat diverse. you know some would self-identify as as evangelical and others would not. some might identify as progressive and others would not um, So there's a diversity there that much is is sure. I would also say that many, if not most centers, probably make some concerted effort to resist these labels, right? Because the labels themselves tend to sort of put organizations or persons in a box, they have a tendency to promote a kind of tribalism. And it's it's precisely that tribalism that we're trying to resist as we facilitate conversations across differences. I remember years ago asking a student who was graduating from Cornell, you know, what has been the value of your involvement in this ministry? And he said something to me that I'll I'll never forget, because it wasn't something I really thought of as the main thing we were offering to students. He said, you have taught us how to disagree. You've modeled disagreement that's healthy. You sit there and have this conversation and debate that doesn't become at all embittered or angry or whatever. You know, you're just exploring, learning, trying to get at the truth. And I thought, mm, that's I, I like that. That's helpful, you know. And it's possible to have those conversations across the evangelical progressive divide um, without necessarily having to kind of put a stake in the ground and say, this is the way our community is bounded right here um, by this identity marker or or what have you. Yeah. And these words have generational connotations that vary. I mean, the word, the word evangelical, I mean, for somebody who's 50 versus somebody who's 20, Mm -hmm. that itself is a whole conversation. Absolutely. And a conversation worth having. But uh, the first step
0: is naming it as a conversation to be had. Yeah. So uh, maybe even in light of what you said, who are some heroes of the faith that the study centers tend to hold up to students as? Here's an exemplar. Here's what it looks like to truly be a Christ follower in the 21st century who is thoughtful and
1: engaged. Sure. So um, you're going to find some examples that are historic figures. So even among the names of study centers, you will find Augustine, Anselm, uh, Chesterton, Lewis. You know the, some of the some of the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into you know more contemporary Christian scholarship, you have sort of the early Christian mind movement scholars, the likes of say. George Marsden and Mark Knoll in history and philosophy you've got Al Plantinga and Eleanor Stump, Nicholas Wolterstorff, you know folks like that who have been very influential I think to many people regarding the possibilities of of the Christian mind mm-hmm. I should mention Dorothy Sayers also among the Chesterton Lewis British scholars very influential uh, and especially on the topic of, of work and vocation but also imagination more generally, in the arts. I would say among more contemporary writers, uh, younger folks, maybe Andy Crouch, uh, Jamie Smith, Tish Harrison Warren is appreciated by many folks, Esau McCauley, you know, both both of the latter, by the way, now have their own columns in the New York Times, which is a pretty interesting uh, development.
0: And Who's Who really gives a good, again, picture of the values and vision of the study center Christians who are thoughtful and engaged in meaningful ways and having a redemptive influence, but in ways that are often different than what the typical narrative is of what it really looks like to engage culture.
1: Yeah. I should probably also mention uh, James Davison Hunter, whose work Mm. on faithful presence, I think has really influenced and informed a lot of study center uh, staff members and that ideal being a kind of complement that that builds upon, but is not exactly synonymous with the ideal of Christian scholarship. So, mm-hmm. you know, from Marsden and Noel and Stump and others, the emphasis originally uh, in study centers tended to be on Christian scholarship. And without losing that emphasis, there's now also more of an emphasis on things like vocation and Christian presence. I see.
0: Well, several of the, a lot of the guests I've had on have offered a threefold taxonomy of what Christian students need in order to flourish in, in their years at college. And uh, you've, you've touched a number of these. One is the intellectual development, and uh, another is a missional engagement, the third being spiritual growth. And some have offered a fourth being community, which you've mentioned. And I've, I've asked each guest, whether they'd agree with that taxonomy or if they'd offer anything additionally or nuance that that in any
1: way in terms of what students
0: really need to flourish during their university years?
1: Well, given that I don't have my own off-the-cuff rubric here, that sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) Um, The way I would riff on it is this. Uh, When I find myself talking to students about the things they need to attend to during their college years, they've already generally heard the basics uh, regarding fellowship and study and, and this and that and the other thing. The one thing I feel like I can sometimes challenge them on a little bit that they haven't paid a lot of attention to is idolatry. I say there are certain forms of idolatry that are very culturally acceptable. And in the university environment, most notable among them, I think, is careerism. Mm. and success you know parents send their kids off to school and, and and they tell them you know to be careful of the hedonism but parents are rooting for their kids to succeed right to do really well academically and professionally and financially and i think we don't talk enough about the fact that success can be morally hazardous when we start thinking of ourselves as self-sufficient and the source of our own provision. And the biblical teaching on the Sabbath undermines that, right? God is the one who provides for us. To be sure, we add our labors to his in cultivating the world to become more nearly what it ought to be. But he is always the source of our provision, never we ourselves. And careerism is so rampant in universities and in our culture that it bleeds into the church, and it's tolerated. And uh, this is something I think we could talk about more.
0: Well, and it sounds like this is identifying the median or the mean between two extremes. One extreme I hear often from student ministries, not articulated by their national leadership, but I've certainly seen it on the ground, which is this idea of study as little as possible so you can have as much time as possible to do the really important stuff of sharing your faith with your, your your friends and discipling students, right? And then you're identifying the other extreme, it sounds like, of, well, it's all about your academic life, and it's all about getting the top GPA to get the right career to really be successful. And you're saying, no, there's there's this middle ground that we're trying to help students identify as the, as the right place, which includes Sabbath. Uh, in a sense that ultimately God is the one who causes the, the growth and the progress and the success. But have I framed it up right? Or are you saying something different? Or do you want
1: to add something there? Um, yeah, I think that's close. Um, I, you know, I don't, sometimes I don't know if balance is the right metaphor. I don't know if you use the word balance, but because we're not really seeking a, a middle ground as such. it's It's not as if we want to aim to be something less than excellent in our studies or or less than successful in our pursuits but what we need to do is to keep our studies and our work in a broader frame of reference And the broader frame of reference would be love of god and neighbor that these Mm. things should always be in the service of that greater good otherwise they become about us So, you know, I I encourage students to pursue excellence by all means, but they should also expect, and this is where the testimonies of parents and alumni coming back to campus can be really helpful, expect major setbacks. Mm -hmm. Your career is almost certainly not going to unfold in the smooth way that you might imagine that it will.
0: Yeah. And learn not to tie your identity or worth in that, but in Christ.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We we did a uh, an event one time some years ago in conjunction with the Veritas Forum. And the title of it was You Are Not Your Resume. Really good. And it was a great title. And a lot of students showed up to hear <laughs> what that was all about. Mm-hmm. Well, Carl, here's
0: the fourth and last question uh, that I've asked everyone. I want to get your thoughts on this. You've really already said it a lot about this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You might have a different way to frame it up. Uh, How do Christian study centers understand the relationship between the students' faith and call in relationship to the university? In other words, how should students be involved in the university in light of their Christian faith and walk?
1: Great question. You know, we do like to say sometimes that we're here not just to serve students as they pass through the institution, but to serve the institution itself. Mm. Um, universities have their own institutional culture Mm -hmm. and oftentimes the basis on which they relate to those institutions has been conflict. And there are perhaps times when that conflict is unavoidable that interests our intention with each other, but I think there are also lots of opportunities for Christians to serve the institutions that they inhabit. And we should look for those opportunities just as we benefit from learning from the scholars at the universities. There's all kinds of examples I could give. Yeah, give us one or two. One um, interesting example would be uh, Nathan Barzy, who is the executive director of the Octet Collaborative at MIT, was actually invited to participate in some scholarly conversations at, at Harvard uh, related to bioethics. And, um, you know, bioethics is, is a huge field, all kinds of, yeah. you know, very challenging ethical dilemmas that are faced by people across disciplines. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was invited to actually speak from his perspective as uh, a pastor with a PhD in, in theology. About the doctrine of the image of God and how that provides a basis for the dignity of human persons and this, by the way, you know, is a doctrine that has implications for uh, many other disciplines like international affairs and, and human rights. Uh, and and so forth you know if you don't if you don't have some ground or basis for believing in the dignity of human persons a lot of other things fall apart right so a a lot of people are acting as if they believe in something like human dignity despite not really having much of a ground or basis for for believing it so this is this is there are areas here where christians can enter into these conversations and say you know Religious tradition like Christianity actually has resources to bring to bear on this conversation. It's helpful and constructive. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I love hearing examples like that. Give me another one.
1: Okay. So some years ago, uh, I brought a speaker in who was a, a conservationist and an ornithologist and I arranged for him to speak to the university's ornithologists, of which there are several.
0: Now, is that the study of birds?
1: Oh, yeah, the study of study of the study of birds. Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. <laughs> so I, I was ninety percent, so, uh, but I
0: wasn't one hundred percent.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> uh, so um, a question was asked of this fellow. We, the Cornell scientists, said try to do conservation work in some poor rural areas and other nations and you know we're not always well received because we're perceived as you know sort of the outsider and the scientist and you've had some success entering into these communities and work how do you do that right and he says well we establish some common relational basis with folks usually through our faith tradition, mm. you know, we get to know them through church and conversations around faith. And um, you know, this this fellow has tagged over a hundred thousand birds in his life, <laughs> so so he has he has wow. a kind of credibility speaking to uh, ornithologists. And um, the follow up question was, well, wh- how do you do that? And he says, well, I do that by using the language of my tradition, (laughs) which I thought was a a wonderfully roundabout way of answering the question. But um, he knew he was in a very secular environment, so he was hesitant to put more flesh on it than that. And the question came back at him, okay, I think I understand what you're saying, but I want you to be much more specific. Just give it to me. What is the language of your tradition? How does this work? And he starts out and he says, well, you know, we believe that God created the world good, Uh, that all creatures were in harmony, that this goodness has fallen apart, that God is at work in the world, restoring all relationships to the way they ought to be. And that includes relationships, not just between human persons and God, but among human persons and even between human persons and the natural environment. And not only that, but he's delegated that task to us and so now we need to enter into god's work and so when we do habitat restoration we're doing god's work this is a god-given vocation and calling he says, and when i put it in those kinds of terms the folks in these rural poor areas get it they understand what i'm saying and Mm -hmm. um we find a kind of receptivity to the conservation message that we're bringing which is not the easiest thing to pull off from a purely scientific basis.
0: Right. Well, and it's so illustrative of the biblical mandate to have your speech seasoned with salt, as Jesus did often, not just lay it all out there, but invite questions and invite curiosity and engender conversation that gives me, and I think our listeners a really good picture of what it looks like. To as a study center movement, help foster those kind of conversations for for the common good and 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 the growth of God's kingdom in the university, yeah well call as we wrap up, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on and in in that, maybe even just just summarize why students should consider being a part of a Christian study center while they're studying at the university?
1: I would say in my experience. Although I had gone to church most all of my life when I was young, my faith was not very real right up until the time I arrived at college. I was a good student. I took my studies seriously. I liked learning. But when I became more serious about my faith, it was like the world went from black and white to color. Mm. And there's no going back. When you see all of life and learning through the eyes of Christian faith, everything is more interesting. When I hosted Laman Sana here at Cornell years ago, he was a historian and divinity scholar at Yale. He said something to me I'll never forget. He said, All of the most interesting questions that can be asked are fundamentally religious questions. If you look really closely at the nature of the question, they're questions about meaning and purpose. And value, regardless of how you answer them, whether you answer them religiously or not, the questions themselves, they're fundamentally religious questions. And I think he's basically right. Going back to that C.S. Lewis quote, I think when we look at life through the lens of faith, we're able to see more. That's actually, incidentally, a, a real connection between faith and science, because part of what a good scientific perspective does is it helps you see things that you didn't see before. Sure. This is part of what part of what a scientific theory does. It's fruitful. Mm-hmm. It's programmatic. It encourages additional questions, additional research, and helps you see things that you otherwise weren't seeing. That's the way I experience faith, which is to say it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's it's joyful. And to be gathered together with a bunch of other people who have similar interests and questions and are exploring things from a similar perspective, I, I just think it's an amazing opportunity.
0: And that is what students will find if they can hopefully on their campus wander into a Christian studies center and meet some of the folks there and be involved in the in the conversation. I hope so. Yep. And I've seen it happen many a time. So may may your tribe increase, my my friend. Thank you. Yeah. So where can listeners go to learn more about the movement, about uh, local uh, study
1: centers? I would say the first go-to place would be the website of the consortium, which is cscmovement.org. And there you will find, among other things, a map that shows the 33 study centers around the country. Great.
0: I'll also mention a book that came out not long ago I recently read on the history of the study center. For those who want to maybe get the backstory a little bit more, uh, the title is To Think Christianly, A History of Brie. Regent College and the Christian Study Center Movement by Charles Cotherman. I thought it was a great read and gave me some some broader context for a lot of what the
1: Study Center Movement's up to. It really is a great book. And I'll admit when I started reading it, I did not expect to learn as much as I did. <laughs> because I thought I thought I pretty much knew the story. Yeah, um, yeah. But he he really digs down and you know connects the dots and the genealogy of the movement in very helpful ways. And I'll also say it's it's a very readable book. It really is. So I, I would I would endorse it highly.
0: Is there any bibliography that you would especially recommend to students? that would point them to good resources to think well about their faith, uh, maybe especially related to their academic disciplines or even more broadly?
1: Yeah, I'll put in a word for the resources to be found at Hearts and Minds Books. Byron Borger, who is a friend and a mentor of sorts to many of us uh, in this movement, um, has been running, along with his wife Beth, this extraordinary independent Christian bookstore for decades. On that website, uh, you will find some bibliographies that I think are very, very helpful, as well as a tremendous number of book reviews.
0: Perfect, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, Carl, this has been a great conversation. I just am so thankful for your your vision and leadership, and uh, in so many ways, seeing seeing this idea more and more of a reality and more and more campuses. So, thanks for being on the show and sharing your wisdom and a little bit of the history and. Encouraging students and their parents and others with, with, with what the Christian Say Center movement is doing these days.
1: Well, thank you, Stan, for your good work and for the opportunity to talk about this stuff with you.
0: That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.